At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, today we're going to be looking at a section of Philippians that is going to call us to unity. Now, when I think about the topic of unity, the opposite of unity is division. And so let me ask you just a simple question. How many of you, not necessarily in your experience in this room, but in your experience in this life, in this era in which you're living, how many of you are experiencing some divisions in your relationship, just some, some strife around some place? Anybody? A much more peaceable group than the earlier service, and yet I'm guessing that all of us are experiencing some divisions right now. There are a lot of things going on in our world that seek to divide us. And, and the, the hard reality is that the divisions that are, are felt are not just divisions that are felt on CNN or Fox News or your favorite podcast or blog, but those divisions are things that are felt probably in your neighborhood or in your family, maybe even inside of your church family as you found yourself at odds with someone in your small group over something in recent days related to some of the things that are going on in our world. And so we live in a world that I don't need to illustrate for very long about the divisions that exist around us. But here's something that I know about each of you. My, my guess is that no one in this room wants to contribute to the divisions. You didn't come here this morning thinking, you know what I really want? I want to put a further divide in our world. I want to really just leverage people apart, especially those inside of the church. That's my objective. That's my intent. My guess is that's how no one walked in. And so if that's how none of us walked in, then this passage of Scripture today should be an encouragement to us because it shares with us how we can be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem as we can learn how we can follow Christ into bringing some unity inside of the church. Now, here's the thing. When I begin to talk about unity and division, here is the temptation that everyone in this room is going to have. And that's the temptation to think that this message is for someone else. You're going to think, man, this is a message I need to share with so-and-so because they need to get their head right with ball related to whatever the issue is that has led to our division. You know, sometimes that's how we approach messages like this. And I'll be honest, sometimes that's how we preach passages like this. I'm going to preach this because I want you to think like me. But the reality is that every single one of us has a propensity to contribute to the problem and not aid in the solution. But in this passage, we find how all in Christ can be a part of bringing unity inside the church, not by just trying harder and not by getting everybody to think the way that we think, but by accessing the mind of Christ. And so we're going to look at this today as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you've got a Bible, you might want to take it out and turn to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're going to read those verses and then back up and make two observations that will help us understand how we can have the attitude of a servant and how we can be a part of helping to bring unity to the church. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1, says this, 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, friends, in these 11 verses, 11 of the most famous verses in the New Testament, we're going to see two things that will help us know how we can have the attitude of a servant and how we can help bring unity instead of division to the body of Christ. Well, what are those things? The first one is this. Put the you in unity. Put the you in unity. Now, I say that again because our propensity in a passage about unity is to think that what we need is uniformity. What we need is everybody to think like me. And so if everybody would just think like me, then we would have no problems. But that's not what the appeal is in this passage. The appeal that Paul gives is one that invites all of us to recognize the role that we play in the divisions that we experience and that we might turn to Christ to solve them together. Now, where do we find that inside this passage? We find it by looking at a couple of things. The first thing we we need to do is we need to remember the context of Philippians chapter 2. As a matter of fact, this is a part of a longer letter, and we've been looking at that. And last Sunday, we saw one particular verse in Philippians 1.27 that says this. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There was a a call that Paul gave to the Philippian church, and he said, I I don't want you to fight each other, but I want you to join together and, and labor against the common enemy in the world for the advancement of the gospel. Paul had unity on his mind. And so when he begins chapter 2, he is connecting what he's getting ready to say to this sentiment of unity. And we know that because he begins chapter 2 with this little word translated so. It might be translated therefore in your your translation. But what what you find there is a connection between chapter 2 and chapter 1. Unless you think I've just arbitrarily picked this idea of unity out of chapter 1 as what he is connecting to in chapter 2, look at what he says in verse 2 of chapter 2. Because in in verse 2, this is what he says. Paul says, I want you to complete my joy, Philippians. In other words, there's something I desperately want for you. I want you to complete my joy. He says, "And, and what will do that? Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You hear that repetition there? It is unity that he desires inside of the Philippian church. And so he calls them to it. 
And as he calls them to that unity, it's interesting his rationale for it. His rationale for it is not just because he doesn't like conflict. His rationale for it is because of what Jesus has done for them. We see that in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ... In other words, he he writes to the Philippians and he says, Philippians, I know you're aware of this, that Jesus has encouraged us. Jesus has exhorted us. Jesus has died to save us into one body, to create this unity. As we began the service today, we read from John chapter 17, where Jesus prayed for the unity of his followers. Paul writes to them and he's going to make an appeal to unity, but he's going to say, I want you to have unity because that's what Jesus wants for you. That's what Jesus has provided for you. Not only that, but Jesus has also provided comfort from love. When Jesus was resurrected, he did not disappear, but he ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit into the hearts and lives of believers. He equipped people for service so that his love might be administered in our midst, so that we would have comfort in the love of Christ as we gather together. So Paul writes and he says, you've been encouraged to unity in Christ. Jesus has provided a way for that and an experience of that through gifting the church to provide this kind of love. But not only that, but as we gather together, we are participating, we're sharing, we're fellowshipping in one spirit together. If we are in Christ, the same Holy Spirit that resides in me resides in you. There's no hierarchy here. There's not multiple spirits of God. There's one spirit of God. And if we are in Christ, that Spirit has come to reside inside of our lives, so we are knit together in a fellowship of the Spirit. Why should we be called to unity? Because we are unified in Spirit because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not only that, but this Spirit that resides within us works within us to cause us to have affection and sympathy for one another. There are so many things going for the unity of the church because that is what Jesus intends. That's what he has built. That's what he has created. And that's what he is providing for even right now in our midst. There is unity that Christ has bought and created that we are to be experiencing here and now. Well, if all of those things have been provided to create that kind of unity, why is it that we don't experience more of it? If this is what Jesus has created, how come there are so many divisions inside the church? Well, Paul gives us a clue as to why that is. And he gives us that clue in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What is preventing the unity that Christ provided? Well, oftentimes, he would say, what is preventing the unity that Christ provided is me. And what is preventing the unity Christ provided is you. Now, I'm not pointing out anyone in particular when I say that. But what I'm saying is that inside of each of us is still a flesh that longs for our own way. In that when not constrained, will pursue a selfish ambition or a vain conceit. That we will seek to arrange things in a way that makes us look good, that makes us feel comfortable, and that works to our benefit, that makes sense to us. That propensity, that bent, 
exists inside of each of us, and it works at odds with the unity that Christ has created. A group of people that gather together that think that they're right and that gather together to convince you to think like they do is not a group of people that will stay unified for very long. And again here, I don't think that Paul is talking about theology in this section, but I think he is talking about just our practice and our attitude towards one another. Christ has created this unity, and the things that stands in the way of that so often is me, and so often is you. Moises Silva says this, a commentator, he says, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. Shifting attention away from ourselves becomes the challenge. See, oftentimes, again, we, we're, we're trained to think that the reason why there's conflict is because there's a bunch of people that are just screwed up. Not me, but there's a bunch of people that aren't thinking right, and that's the problem. But what we see inside of this passage is an admission, a humility that acknowledges that there's not just brokenness out there, there's brokenness in here. And because of that, I could seek to pursue a selfish ambition or a vain conceit even when I'm not aware of it. It's instinctual for me, and it's instinctual for you, and it works at odds with the unity that Christ has created. Well, if that's the case, then what do we do? Well, what we do is we respond in humility. We respond with acknowledging that we don't have all the answers. We respond by not just thinking less of ourselves that just, well, I'm terrible. Not that, but thinking of ourselves less. In other words, this is a common malady that we face And as we gather together, I I need to have a humility that says, I don't have it all together and you don't have it all together, but maybe as we follow Christ together, we can get more of it together. This is the idea of the, the humble mind, and it ought to permeate the followers of Christ. Peter would say this of humility in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. See the connection there? We're not just to humble ourselves before God and then make others treat us like a king or a queen but we humble ourselves before both God and men. It's a proper understanding of who we are. It's a proper understanding of the fallenness that we have experienced in this world and the temptation of the flesh that impacts all of us. Friends, we are to respond to our propensity to lean in the direction of selfish ambition and conceit by responding in humility in the way that we relate to one another. As we respond with that kind of humility, we will have a chance to look and interact with others in a different kind of a way. Paul says in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The humble person looks to others and not only does he pursue or she pursue their betterment or their best, but also there's an understanding that they are entering into the relationship with something to offer us. We're looking to their interests or their giftedness or their wisdom. Not a one of us in this room sees everything right. 
But collectively, as we gather together, as we are dependent upon the Spirit of God, we might understand more things correctly. This is part of why it's so beautiful to gather and open Scripture in a small group together or in a Sunday school class. As we interact over the text and ask questions of it and challenge one another, we get a greater sense, a greater understanding of the mind of Christ, but it takes a humility to get there. It's not, let's get together and let me educate you on the way that you are to think, but it's, let's get together and let's gather around the Word of God together and trust that God can open it up to us and He can use you in my life and He might use me in your life. Let's not just look to our own interests, but let's also look to the interests of others. Friends, are we willing, are we willing to put the you in unity? Well, if so, what are a couple of ways that we might begin to apply this in our lives? Well, one question or one statement we would think about is this. Nothing is separated from humility. Nothing is separated from humility. Now, even as I, I wrote this, I'm trying to think, how do I put this into words? That's a really weird sentence. I just want to acknowledge that that's a strange thing. But so let me tell you exactly what I'm trying to communicate. Maybe as we talk about it, it'll become more clear. What I'm saying is that all of us have the propensity to be humble in areas where we know we don't know very much, right? It's easy for us to be humble in areas where we know we don't know very many things. When I talk to an engineer about how best to structurally put together a building, I'm very humble in that conversation because I haven't taken a math class since 1991, right? So there's a built-in humility to that. But when I get into other fields, Sometimes I cannot be as humble. When I move over to begin to talk about theology, I can begin to think, well, I know the answer to that because I've got this degree and that degree, and I've been doing this for X number of years. And so I might be humble in one area, but in an area where I've got some experience or something like that, I might be less humble. But the challenge that we see inside of Philippians chapter 2 is this word, nothing. Beginning of verse 3, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's not just do the things where we don't have any experience, but be very proud in the other areas. He says, don't in any area of your life allow this haughtiness to take root. Tony Evans picks up on this idea. He says, nothing doesn't allow for exceptions. It would have been a lot easier if Paul had said, don't do most things out of selfish ambition or conceit. That would allow us an escape clause but nothing requires ongoing commitment to humility. Friends, when we think about applying this idea, don't just apply it in the areas where you know you know nothing, but we need to apply this in areas where we think we know everything. That's the point. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. I don't care how many articles you've read. Your attitude towards your fellow believer in Christ should not be to belittle them. I don't care what schooling you've had. Your attitude should not be to belittle those who have gone before you. Friends, in every area of our life, we need to understand that we need to put the you in our unity. And part of that is being willing to apply a humble attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of the area. One way we might think of applying this concept. But a second application would be this. Admit we don't know it all. Again, this is in a similar vein, but it's, it's important. 
admit that we don't know it all. As we gather together with believers, as we discuss our differences, don't walk into that conversation assuming that we know everything and they know nothing. That is not a recipe for unity. That's a recipe for division. But our attitude must be soft. Oftentimes, we can think that the, the, the problem is that they don't think like me. But I think if we were to summarize this idea, I think Paul might say something like this. The problem is not that they don't think like me. The problem is that I only think of me. Right? Any amens out there to that? I'm talking to myself as I preach this message, friends. So as we think about applying this idea, are we willing to admit that we don't know everything? Are we willing to to have an attitude towards others that has an expectation that their interests might have an impact on my life? If so, then we are taking a step in the direction of applying what Paul talks about here when he encourages us to put the you in unity. There's a second thing that he says, not just to put the you in unity, but he's going to go on to make one of the grandest statements in all the New Testament about the theology of Jesus Christ over who Jesus is. But I don't want us to miss the connection with what he says in verses 1 through 4. See, in verses 5 to 11, he's going to tell us about the identity of Jesus Christ, but he uses the identity of Jesus in this grand theology to articulate the reason and the power behind you and I not walking in selfish ambition and vain conceit, but instead walking in humility. It's connected to the person of Christ. It's connected to the mind of Christ. And he encourages us to access Jesus' attitude, to access his attitude, to access his perspective, to access his mind. Now, often when we look at this verse, and specifically verse 5, where he says, have this mind among yourselves, have this attitude, have this perspective among yourselves. Often when we see that, we, we think that this is offering us an example. Use Jesus in his historical life as an example. And certainly, his life was historical, and certainly is a, it is an example for us. But what he is saying here is something that goes even beyond being an example. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, if we are in Christ Jesus, if we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, then we have the hope of of eternity. We have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of forgiveness of our sins, do we not? But you know what else we have? We have access to the Spirit of God that transforms our souls. But you know what else we have? We also have access to the very mind of Jesus Christ. It can be our mind. It can be our perspective. If if in our flesh and in our fallenness, we have a propensity towards selfish ambition and vain conceit, in Christ, we have access to something far greater. We have access to a mind that sought not to enslave all, not to belittle all, Not to win every argument, but to invest all that he had in the service of you and me. And friends, we see that laid out for us very clearly in the verses that follow. As he talks about the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we learn about Jesus in these verses? Well, the first thing we learn about Jesus is that he exists eternally as God. We see this in 
verse 6, after talking about Christ Jesus, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Now, we'll get to that equality with God in just a moment, but I want to focus for a moment about the phrase, the form of God. When Paul wrote that, he wasn't saying that, that, that Jesus was just acting like God or he put on God, a God costume for a while. What he's saying is that Jesus is in the form of God, that Jesus is God. And you know who God is? God is the one who has existed eternally. That means Jesus didn't begin at Bethlehem, but he always has been. John chapter 1 and verse 1 makes that very clear. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word there being a nickname for Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. He created all things, and Jesus is God. Hebrews chapter 1, in the first three verses, says the same thing. It says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 makes a similar comment about Jesus being God. The New Testament is very clear that that Jesus is God, and if He's God, He's existed eternally because that's who God is. It's in His very nature. He's the only one, the only thing not ever created. He is the one who's existed for all time, and that's who Jesus is. And if that's who Jesus is, that means that Jesus is omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient, all those omnis. But it also means that He's holy and he's, He's just He's righteous, he's good, he's loving. He's all of those things that God is. All of those attributes are Jesus's in abundance and for all time. He existed in the form of God. But what's interesting is, though he talks about Jesus existing eternally as God, he goes on to say this amazing thing about Jesus, that Jesus invested his privilege for us that Jesus invested his privilege for us, that though he had access to everything, it was his right to stay in heaven forever and to just demand that people bow before him. He did not choose to do that. Instead, Jesus chose to invest all of his divinity in an effort to show us who God is and to reconcile us to God. How did he do that? Well, he did that, verse 7 tells us, by emptying himself and taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. This is talking about what happened when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It says that, He emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? Sometimes that's mistakenly understood to mean that Jesus left all of his divinity in heaven and just became a man for 33 years. But that's not true. That's not the idea of this emptying. The idea of this emptying is not that he ceased to be God or he stopped being God, but it's that he poured all of his divinity into a human body. So that he became became not just fully God, but also fully man. I love what Macher says of this in his commentary on Philippians. He says, it is not of what did Jesus empty himself. In other words, not what divine aspect he lost when he came to the earth. But he said, but it is into what did he empty himself? He emptied himself into a human 
form. He stepped into our world. He lived a life among us. And while he did that, he stepped away from the independent exercise of a number of his divine attributes. Things like his omnipresence. He was just in one spot. Things like his omnipotence. He could have flown from Galilee to Jerusalem. And by that, I don't mean catch, you know, a little two-engine plane. I mean, he could have literally flown. He's omnipotent. There's nothing that he can't do. But he didn't. He walked that journey again and again. He could have never been hungry. He could have always just created food in front of him, like like he did when he fed the 5,000. But instead, he chose to operate under the normal parameters of human life for the vast majority of the time of his existence upon the earth. Why did he do all of those things? He He chose to take his privilege, and instead of clinging to it and keeping it to himself, he chose to invest it in a mission to reach you and me so that we might understand who God is and so that we might be reconciled to him as Jesus died on the cross. Verse 8 talks about the extent of this mission. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How committed to this mission was Jesus? He was so committed that he went all the way to experience the worst form of execution that was known in the world at that time. All because he wanted to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He took his privilege and he invested it in you and he invested it in me. Think about the implications of this, friends. If Jesus had left his divinity behind in heaven when he came to the earth, then it would have been a one-time decision that he made to humble himself by coming here. But by virtue of us understanding that he had access to all of his divinity at all times during his earthly life, that means that he was committed to that mission every moment of every day. He made decision after decision after decision to continue to walk in that kind of humility. He didn't give up. He didn't back out. He had access to those divine qualities. He chose not to use them because he was going to offer his life for you and for me. That's an amazing thing. And in the midst of this, we, we see an example of, of the, the kind of, 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 of leader that Jesus was. He was a godly leader. And it's important for us to, to think about this, the difference between a leader God uses and a godly leader. What leaders does God use? All different kinds, right? Read your Bible. He uses Nebuchadnezzar, for crying out loud, as well as using King David. God can use any kind of a leader. But what kind of a leader is a godly leader? Well, Jesus was God, so as he leads, we find out what godly leadership actually looks like. And what it looks like is not taking what we have and keeping it to ourselves and trying to draw respect and admiration from others, but it's taking the privilege that we have and investing it in others for their growth and betterment. Friends, this is the picture that we see of Christ inside of these verses. Jesus invested his privilege for you, and he invested his privilege for me. He also walked the walk. Jesus didn't just 
write a short story about humility. He didn't just tell a story about it, but he came and he lived it for 33 years. And he lived it all the way to the point of death on a cross. It's a reminder of the level of his love and his commitment to us, fully God and fully man, invested in serving you and serving me. And then lastly, we see in verses 9 to 11 that Jesus is eternally honored. Love these verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we learn about Jesus from this? We learn that he is the one who will get the last word. Eventually, every knee will bow before him. We find out that he is the one who has this ultimate position of prominence, that it is him who will be exalted all time and forever. And we see the honor that God the Father extended to him, not in this life, but ultimately in eternity. And we see that laid out as Jesus is eternally honored as the Son of God. Now, again, just as we did before, as we are reminded of this principle, as we think of the attitude that Jesus had that we have access to, not just as an example, but the attitude that we have access to, to to follow. Well, what, what do we see here? Well, a couple of things. The first thing that we see is this. Are we willing to sacrifice our interests for each other? Are we willing to sacrifice our interests for each other? Such a, a, an important question for each of us to, to ask ourselves. I, I love what Constable says of this. He says, Jesus was willing to alter his behavior for the welfare of others. And in this, he's an example of submissiveness for us. Are, are we willing to alter our behavior for the welfare of others? Are we willing to to sacrifice being the one that feels like we win the argument in order to see the unity built up inside the church? Jesus modeled that for us. Are we willing to sacrifice our interests for each other? And the second statement that I think is important for us to think about is this. Are we willing to find our reward in him? Are we willing to find our reward in him? Again, we think about Jesus who is ultimately rewarded in eternity, even if in this life he experienced challenge. He was willing to endure that now, but it paid off in the end. And knowing the example of Christ ought to really give us some perspective as we think of the divisions and conflicts that are faced around us. When I look at this passage, I'm reminded that Jesus will have the final word. The last word will be his. Therefore, by application, the last word does not have to be mine. I don't have to win the argument. I don't have to have the last email, the last tweet. I can let it go in that moment, knowing that ultimately Christ will be exalted and will be honored. Second thing that happens is when I look at the end time, the the thing that will, will happen forever and ever, we see there's a position of prominence and on that throne will be Jesus. At, at his name, every knee will bow, not at mine. Therefore, I don't need to hold every position of prominence even now because I know that it's not mine to hold. Even if I'm treated as a servant, even if, if you are treated as a servant, even if we are disregarded in different ways, we can persist 
following the example of Christ, knowing that His position is permanent and forever. And lastly, we can be reminded that even if we are not treated the way we want to be treated now, that ultimately if we know Christ as He is honored in eternity, we may be as well. Friends, are we willing to find our reward in Him? If so, we can have a lot more humility in our our interactions with others as we live out our lives today. Paul writes to the Philippian church, and he encourages them to put the you in unity and to do so by taking a humble attitude, the attitude of a servant, as demonstrated by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Will we be a a people who respond to Him in that way? The mind of Christ is available to us. Will we access it by faith? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to read this passage today and to talk about it. Thank you for the identity of of who you are and, and how you demonstrate for us what it looks like to be humble and to serve, to look out for the interests of others and not only of our own interest. Father, may we be a people marked with humility as we interact with each other as a church family and as we link our shields together to proclaim the gospel into a dark world. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.